0: Hello, everybody. This is Rob Fernet with the podcast HodgePot, and welcome. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking to the author K.P. Wee of the book "The 1988 Dodgers: Reliving the Championship Season." I read this book; I love the book, and K.P. will be joining me in a few minutes for this episode. But there's more to the 1988 Dodgers than Tommy Lasorda, the manager, Kirk Gibson, and Oral Hershiser. This team. We're going to learn from the regular season through the NLCS when they played the Mets. They lost 10 of 11 games to the Mets in the 88 season, and then we're going to go to the 1988 World Series. Things behind the scenes that I never knew that I really enjoyed learning about in this book. But to really cap it off, we have to go to Game 1, Kirk Gibson, bottom of the ninth, 3-2 count, two outs, Game 1 of the World Series against the heavily favored Oakland A's, Kirk Gibson could barely walk. He didn't even dress for the game, but he dressed for the ninth inning on this dramatic home run in game one of the World Series. Bad pitch to handle for Hasse. Outside, now watch when he starts to throw. Look at Gibson.
1: And Harvey says, no, no, he had the base stolen. So Mike Davis, the tying run is at second base with two out. Now the Dodgers don't need the muscle of Gibson as much as a base hit. And on deck is the leadoff man, Steve Sachs. Three and two. But the game right now is at the plate.
0: One of the greatest home runs in World Series history. So here is my interview with KP Wee, the author of the book, The 1988 Dodgers Reliving the Championship Season, and enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to HodgePot. I'm Rob Ferdette. And for this episode, I will be talking baseball with KP Wee, author of the terrific book, The 1988 Dodgers Reliving the Championship Season, published by Rowan and Littlefield. And KP is also an author, he's authored other books as well on sports, the 1993 Canadian Seven Magical Weeks, Tom Candiotti, A Life of Knuckleballs, and John Cangelosi, The Improbable Baseball Journey of the Undersized Kid from Nowhere to World Series Champion. And KP, you also have a podcast. First of all, welcome, and uh, thank you very much for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure to be joining you today, Rob. I'm excited to talk baseball. Yes, sir. Well, I
0: appreciate it, and you also have a podcast. I was getting excited about talking to you. You have a podcast as well, don't you?
1: I do. It's a KPW podcast, and it started as a project to talk about sports, but it has uh, since evolved into talking about um, workplace situations uh, to mentor, um, you know, students and others. And you know, it's just fun to be able to talk to like-minded people, whether it's about sports or whether it's about education i think that you know having a blast doing that so it's, it's, uh, it's always fun to again to chat with uh, like-minded people uh, whether it's about baseball in this case or you know other topics that, uh, that are interesting and fun
0: excellent excellent well again thank you so much so um i have to confess i love baseball and uh i love the 88 world series i still remember it to this day but uh, i learned a lot of new things about the book that i did not know when i read the book uh, about the 1988 Dodgers. And I found it fascinating, just some things that I forgot, but there are a lot of things I didn't know, which I really, really was excited to learn about. So like so many in uh, 1988, when I saw the series, it was incredible. The Kirk Gibson home run, obviously, that is like the the epitome of the season, I guess you could say, other than winning the World Series. What about, how did the book come about, first of all, and then we'll get into the season. How did the book come about, and how did you get to talk to all the Dodgers when you were doing this? Because I find that pretty awesome.
1: Well, thanks for the question, Rob. I want to go back and talk about uh, another book that you referenced earlier, Tom Candiotti. So Mm -hmm. um, growing up, you know, I was a big baseball fan and just happened to be like a a supporter of Tom Candiotti, the uh, knuckleball pitcher, and. He pitched for the L.A. Dodgers, you know, a few years after 1988, but uh, I got to write Candy Yachty's biography, and during that process, I, you know, I sent out interview requests with um, teammates, um, general managers, managers, and one of the gentlemen that I spoke with for the Candy Yachty book was Fred Clare, who happened to be the general manager of the 1988 Dodgers and Fred Clare was a guy who signed Candy to the Dodgers uh, in 1992. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a conversation with Fred Clare about Candy Yachty. And, in, you know, um, these days it's not difficult to track down people. Um, it's just a matter of whether they're willing to talk to you. And so I was able to track down Fred Clare's email address because he was teaching at a, um, at a college in Southern California, um, you know, a business program. And, you know, I got to talk to him. And for some reason, uh, Fred, Claire, and I, you know, managed to stay in touch um, over the years. And this book, for Candiotti, um, I started writing it in 2010. So, you know, from 2010 up to, you know, up to even now, uh, Fred, Claire, and I have been in contact. And it was in Christmas of 2016. I remember Christmas 2016. Brett, sent me an email to wish me a Merry Christmas, and I responded back, you know, just the usual um, chit-chat, working working on. And at the time, you know, I wasn't working on anything, and I told him that. Uh, I said, no, I'm not working on anything these days. Thanks for checking in. And then he said, uh, KP, have you thought about doing a book on the 1988 Dodgers because, you know, the uh, 30th anniversary is coming up, in two thousand eighteen. So if you start writing about it now, again, this was Christmas two thousand sixteen, you know, you have it you could have it ready to be published by twenty eighteen, which is the thirtieth anniversary. And I was thinking like, Well that's very nice, Mr. Clare, but there have been at least three other books written about nineteen (laughs) eighty eight for the Dodgers. Like what other what other things could could be written about that hasn't been talked about to death. Uh and so Fred Clare just kind of saw that I was interested in, um, in, you know, continuing or, you know, going further with this idea. So he said, look, KP, you, you know, yes, enough has been written about um, Tommy Lasorda or Hershizer, Kirk Gibson, but uh, even Fred Clare himself had written a book um, about his like 30 years in the Dodger organization. Uh, so he, but Fred told me, you know, but there are other Components to that ball club that you know have been overlooked or maybe forgotten. Well, you know, you could have an angle where you talk to the the lesser known players. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you maybe you don't need to talk to LaSorda or to Hershiser or to Gibson, um, uh, but you can talk to you know the other unsung heroes on the team. And I thought well, that's a great idea. That's a that's a fresh approach. So I, I said, okay if you're able to um, hook me up with uh, some of these guys, that would be great. And I ended up talking to like Tim Leary, for example, the uh, number two pitcher on that 88 team behind Oral Hershiser. I talked to Jay Howell, the closer, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Sachs, Mickey Hatcher, a big part of the, um, uh, of the, the bench players, uh, the stuntmen, they were called. Uh, Rick Dempsey, who caught the final uh, out uh, of the World Series. So there were quite a few. Um, Players, former players that I talked to, as well as uh, the late Ben Hines, uh, the hidden coach who passed away, and um, yeah, so and uh, even Maude Didier, the uh, the scout, um, you know, uh, again who has since passed away. But it, 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 that's how it kind of got started. Is because I wrote about Tom Candiotti and got, um, remained in contact with Fred Clare, the GM wow. of the '88 Dodgers, and it, you know, that's how it, it got started.
0: That is a uh that's a great uh way to uh to uh set that up for this podcast episode. So the Dodgers, I have to confess I'm a Red Sox fan, but uh I have been to Dodger Stadium twice and I Fenway Park's my favorite one, but if you love baseball heaven, going to Dodger Stadium is the best place to watch a baseball game in sunny LA. Um I love it there when I go see the Dodgers. I've seen him twice there, so uh hope to get there again, but uh Dodger Stadium is is the best, don't you think? <laughs>
1: Absolutely, and and, uh, and and just to stop you there, Rob. Uh, I was a Red Sox fan as well growing up, and you know, oh, you're a Dodger fan, aren't you? Because you you wrote this book about the Dodgers, weekend, right? So yeah, yeah so we like, have that in common.
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, I think Dodger Stadium is the best. But uh, go, looking back at the season of 1988, just to set it up a little bit, uh, I did a little bit of my own research uh, and also reading your book as well, which I found fascinating. But uh, the Dodgers in 86 and 87 finished 7th, 73 and 89 both those seasons. And then 1988 took a different approach. Fred Clare looks like he was going to get some, wanted to get some players into the Dodger mix. One player as such, as we'll be discussing pretty much in this episode, uh, along with other players, but uh, Kirk Gibson was the off season um, free agent signing for the Dodgers that really I guess you could say gave a foundation for the '88 season. Now looking back at it,
1: absolutely, and uh, you know, a lot has been said about his uh, heroics in the World Series, and even uh, I guess what maybe is forgotten is he also hit a big home run in the National League Championship Series uh, against the Mets. That uh, even the series at one one uh, sorry at two to two, um, you know, he hit like a game winning. Home run at Shea Stadium in the 12th inning that tied the series at 2-2, so that you know they avoided going down three games to one, which would have been kind of nearly impossible to overcome. And I guess you know you look at the numbers that Kurt Gibson put up that season; seems like uh, everything clicked uh, for the Dodgers. You know, especially in the playoffs and the World Series.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, in that series against the Mets. I mean. It could have been really bad. It had the Dodgers gone down 3-1. to But you think about that game right there. Uh, They're down, and uh, he hits a home run in the top of the 12th, and then Hersheiser comes in and gets the save for the Dodgers. Those two players were pretty much the foundation, I guess, for the grittiness and the uh, competitiveness of the Dodgers that season.
1: That's right, yes. And, of course, uh, Hersheiser is remembered for his uh, 59 consecutive scoreless innings. Uh, down the stretch to, to, to end the season. And in fact, and was able to, uh, you know, continue that dominance during the uh, postseason in October, uh, coming in for that save in the, uh, you know, the, to uh, close out that victory. Uh, that was clutch because you figured he probably wouldn't have had anything left, uh, you know, because uh, he's, he's a, he was a starter and, uh, coming in in a tight situation like that and getting the final out that that was huge. It certainly gave them a big lift, and uh, he uh, threw a shutout in uh, in Game Two against Oakland in the World Series. Uh, that you know if as you know if the Kurt Gibson home run game one of Eckersley did not demoralize the A's, um, the game two shutout you know certainly did that because um, game one. They were beaten against their best reliever, like Kurt Gibson.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, the looking back at it, you know, the, when Gibson hit that home run, I think it uh, pretty much put the A's, I guess, their psyche out. But that game, and then looking back and after reading your book, uh, the six nothing shutout, everybody thinks a game one, but then game two, he comes in and pitches a shutout, and that really uh, put the A's down. So. Looking back at the beginning of the season, I uh, one thing I found really fascinating about when I was reading it is the, uh, s- during spring training, there was a prank that was played on Kirk Gibson. And some people think on the team, think it didn't uh, play a part into the, uh, for the rest of the season. And some people think it did not. But um, what do you think they, what was the incident that really uh, caught my eye? I didn't even know about it until I read the book about the incident with the black shoe polish or the black, you know, the black stuff they put on their face. What was that incident and then what happened with that? Because I found that to be extraordinary.
1: Right. As the story goes, um, it was spring training and one of the pitchers, uh, Jesse Orozco, who was a newcomer to the Dodgers that, that season uh, put some eye black in uh, Gibson's hat. And Kurt Gibson was the guy that uh, was, you know, when it was game day, he was always focused. There was no joking around as far as he's concerned. He puts on the hat and starts jogging out of the center field or, or to the outfield and his teammates were sort of laughing at him so he was pretty upset because he was in L.A. to win a championship, not to be goofing around, playing pranks when they were supposed to be get ready for the season. So you can say that uh, Gibson was kind of an old school type of player, uh, you know, if it's time to play, let's get serious. And so, um, Tommy Lasorda, the manager, had to go and calm him down. That uh, basically, Gibson, as the story goes, just said, "No, I'm done." Like, uh, wow, and get that clown to get that clown to come and apologize and whatnot. Uh, otherwise, I'm out of this team. So, um, so it, it, that's the, the um, that's what um, players who are there um, have told me. And mm. at first, um, you know, nobody knew or very few people knew who was the culprit. And, uh, and it wasn't until the next day when they have a team meeting and uh, Jesse Orosco stepped forward and confessed. And, uh, you know, so Gibson chewed out the whole team and said something to the effect that, let's say, um, you guys were in last place. Well, they, they weren't in last place, but they were close <laughs> to the bottom. You know the vision. You guys from last place last year, and this is why. You know we're supposed to be getting ready for the season, and you, you guys are like laughing and clowning around. Uh, if you know the guy in during drills, if a guy um, missed a cutoff man, you guys are laughing instead of you know being more serious. And now this incident. So uh, basically, you know, what happened was for a lot of the players. That um, team meeting kind of uh, aged you well, uh, you know, to, because it told me that you know, yeah, that incident uh, was the uh, catalyst wow. for the entire season. Of course, other players who are there have also said, you know, I wouldn't say that this is the incident that was a catalyst, but you know, if this had not happened, and then maybe another incident or something else later in the season might have, you know. So it's kind of like uh, I w- I would say some are in the opinion that yes that incident was a callous, but there are others who said no. It's, uh, you, know, it's you know it you know it, w- it was <laughs> blown out of proportion, right? Wow. Well, he so, got yeah he, yeah <laughs> that is a that
0: I, I that's something I did not know. I found to be really I felt like a fly in the wall when I was reading the book. It was incredible because Tommy Lasorda pretty much had to calm him down. And I think maybe the message got through the team in some subliminal message that that he was there to, you know, win a championship. And I think maybe that did fall in line. So um, I, I found that to be really unbelievable story. But, you know, when we go back to the 1988 season, we just had the division winners. And then when we go right into the league championship series, it's not like now we have the division series, wild card games and. Um, different uh, levels of um, rounds. Now, it uh, back then it was like you're as soon as the season's over, you're in the league championship series and in your World Series. So during the season in 1988, one thing that I fell into the trap of is I always thought of the Dodgers of LaSorda, Pershing, Gibson, but there's more to that. And you had mentioned earlier about the stuntmen, and uh, these were the uh, the bench players or utility players who came in that helped uh, backfill injuries and kept the team going. And like Mickey Hatcher, Rick Dempsey, uh, Franklin Stubbs were some Anderson. So basically, you're looking at guys who are filling in while they were maintaining their lead. And this
1: was very important for that season. Absolutely, Rob. And uh, just to go back a little bit, uh, you mentioned Tommy Lasorda just a moment ago. Yeah, and the funny thing is that, as I understand, Tommy Lasorda was a guy who liked to, to pull off pranks in the clubhouse as well. So. <laughs> It wasn't the big very, um I don't know. It, it, it was an adjustment, I would imagine, because you know Tom LaSorda is known for was known for his pranks for sure. But yeah, and there was a there was a shortstop uh, named Alfredo Griffin, whom they brought in from Oakland prior mm-hmm. to the season. And Griffin was you know all glove and no bat. And but Griffin was uh, injured during the middle of the season. He was out for two months, I believe. He got injured because uh, he he was hit by a Dwight Gooden uh, pitch against the Mets uh, and broke, broke a bone in his hand, I, I believe. So for two months, your starting shortstop is out uh, for, for that extended period of time. And Dave Anderson came in, uh, a journeyman very much, came in for two months and hit 300 for a better part of that stretch and played great defense, keep them in it. And yeah, because that could be very, very crippling if you think about it, uh, to, to lose like a key player, you know, up the middle like that. And it was an era without the wild card. You have to win your division. And so, um, and, you know, you can look back later uh, on, uh, in, in that decade or in the early nineties, you know, when they had someone, um, like Jose Ackerman filling that shortstop, right. You know, in the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, not an important position to start a shortstop like that. And even, um, you mentioned Mike Dempsey uh, sorry, Rick Dempsey, pardon me. Mm-hmm. Rick Dempsey, the backup catcher, filling in uh, when Mike Sorza was injured. In, in fact, Mike Sorza was injured in the last few games for the last few games of the World Series, and then it was Rick Dempsey coming in. And he, even like things like you know, uh, Dempsey apparently, um, when he was driving, you know, the younger players to the ballpark because they carpooled um, Dempsey would be going over the fundamentals of the game to players like Dave Hamilton at third base or Tim Larry, the, uh, starting pitcher. So it was kind of like the veterans there, um, educating the younger players, wow. the, the, uh, experienced players about like the, the, you know, the game, uh, basically. Yeah.
0: That's, that's unbelievable. And so, you... so the stunt man work
1: were, were huge. Yeah, the stuntman.
0: I found that, uh, like I said, I felt into that trap there. You know, the players back on that team in '88. So when you look back at the '88 season, um, the Dodgers win their division, and then the Mets, of course, uh, won their division. They won over a won over 100 games. And being a Red Sox fan, I f- was still agonizing over the '86 defeat to the uh, the Mets. I had to live with two New York Mets fans while I was in college, and that was uh, humiliating enough. But um when I look back at the rosters from the eighty-eight Mets, there was pretty much there was a lot of carryover from eighty-six, so they were heavily favored. And then during the regular season, which I after reading the book, they had lost the Dodgers had lost ten of eleven games to the Mets. And I found that in the playoffs with this team that had gained some momentum and uh, uh like a cachet about them. Um, they gave the Mets a pretty hard time in that uh, league
1: championship series. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, um, you know, a lot of fans, and I read this on social media, but a lot of fans have a problem with today's playoff format where, you know, let's say last year the Dodgers finished so many games above the San Diego Padres but had to face them in the playoffs. How is that fair? <laughs> You know, but then you go back exactly and look at 1988. Well, the Mets could have said the same thing, right? Well, we beat, we beat them 10 out of 11 in the regular season. So maybe we should have all, all the league championship games at Shea. But, right? you know, <laughs> and, but it, it's, you know it, it's like when you have a situation like this where one team dominated uh, the another team and they had to face off again in the playoffs, you got fans who are supporting basically the losing team will say, well, it's not fair, or how the hell did this happen, right? And then you have, you know, um, it's, it's just weird that way, but that's how sports is. And, yeah, with the 88 Mets, they had, you know, David Cohn come up uh, and and win 20 games. But uh, with Cohn, I guess, as the story goes, David Cohn ran his mouth off, and the Dodgers <laughs> used Cohn's words What's important material. So, some people have said that that would, what would be a turning point in the season. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, because they literally took David Cohn's words to heart, and you know when Cohn started Game Two of the NLCS, they feast rattled him as a store. Some people have said that that is one of the turning points for sure because Cone ran his mouth off. Um, you know he he had a an article in the, in the newspapers criticizing Hershizer and criticizing um, Jay Howell. <laughs>
0: oh, my goodness. <laughs> Nothing like giving uh, uh, bulletin board material. So I went back and I looked at the roster for the Mets back in 88. Daryl Strawberry, Gary Carter, Len Dykstra, Mookie Wilson, Keith Hernandez, Wally Backman, Howard Johnson. And then they had some up-and-comers, Kevin McReynolds and Greg Jeffries. And then the pitching staff was Dwight Gooden, Sid Fernandez, you mentioned Cone, Aguilera, Ron Darling, and then reliever Roger McDowell. These guys were stacked.
1: These Absolutely. Guys. And, again, again uh, they had beaten the Dodgers like 10 out of 11 during the yeah. regular season. It was over, right? Uh, um, but that's why you play the games. That uh, Again, when it went into Game 7, the Dodgers were at home and they had Oral Hershizer, so... Of yep. that just you know there's no way the Dodgers were gonna lose, but it's funny in those days the, the uh home field advantage was like predetermined right one year it was the western division that had the home field advantage the next year it was the eastern division, and they rotated so yeah, if you think about it, the dodgers uh that year um basically whoever was in the national league West, whoever won the division they would have Wow home field throughout the playoffs and world series because that's set up, right? Because it was predetermined, like it they it rotated year by year. So if you look at let's say the eighty eight eighty eight um dog <laughs> Cincinnati Reds, like who like the the home field advantage in the playoffs and world series. Mm -hmm. that's the that was a format back then
0: so yeah and the Mets I mean Daryl Strawberry was absolutely unbelievable in the the late 80s and then um you know you get to the NLCS and then uh with the Mets up four to two in the top of the ninth and uh one thing I really enjoyed while I was reading the book you know Dwight Gooden walked John Shelby and Mike Sosha came up and hit a two-run homer and again this is uh, this is showing the grit of the Dodgers, and they were, uh, you know, at the possibility of getting, you know, blown out by the Mets, and Sosha hits a, a a big-time home run. And uh, I went back on YouTube and looked at it, and uh, Sosha only had like in his eight previous seasons like 35 home runs. So, again, in the playoffs, you get players like, you know, you can look back at most recent World Series like Cody Ross of the uh, Giants or Mark Bellhorn of the Red Sox, you know, the, the unknown players or then the ones that aren't the superstars or that ends up being the heroes and Socha was an established player but uh he came through big in that uh in that championship series
1: yeah absolutely and uh, you you look you look through the lists uh, the, the history books of, of um the postseason throughout the years uh, it was there's always a little known player or or like a improbable player getting the big hit, a big home run. And yeah, Mike Sosha is known more for his defensive abilities behind the plate. Um uh, hits that big home run. And um you mentioned prior to that there was a walk. And you know, John Shelby Again, like if you go back and look at the stats, even they said right, they they, they couldn't believe it. They knew something was gonna happen in that inning. Uh, even though Dwight Gooden was on the mound, and and as it turned out, Dwight Gooden would never win a postseason game in his career. Uh, and So yeah, and and there have been some who have said that that Mike Social home run was even bigger than Kurt Gibson's um, World Series home run because without that, without that um, home run by Mike Sosha to extend that game to extend it in the extra innings they might not even have made it to the World Series because they would have gone down three games to one you know, if that, had they lost that game to Gooden. And then, um, mm. you know, the Mets would have had three chances to clinch that series, you know, if they were up 3-1. Um, so they might not have even gotten to a seventh game with Hershiser at Dodger Stadium. That's, uh, so there are, you know, these big moments that are forgotten uh for sure and even one other uh, home run I'll bring up uh Mike Marshall Mike Marshall the outfielder for the Dodgers hit a three-run home run in game number 2 of the World Series so, to put them up 6 nothing or to put them up big and then when you have again Mike Marshall hitting a three-run home run uh you know against Oakland in the World Series like it was just literally like <laughs> every player down the line uh, contributed
0: in some way. Yeah, that was definitely you know the cliche, of team effort. Uh, when you see players again, the West. No, Marshall hit twenty home runs that year. He was he wasn't a slouch, but um, he had that you know the, the like you said in the NLCS as well. Um, one other big part of the NLCS was Old uh, Hershiser's pitching performance, which was just off the charts. Uh, game one, eight and a third innings. Game four, seven innings, he pitched a third of an inning in game five for the save, which is incredible. And then in game seven, he won a complete game. And uh, for that year, he won the Gold Glove in the National League, the Cy Young, the NLCS MVP, and the World Series MVP. That is that is quite a season by Hershiser. all in all.
1: Absolutely, and uh, again, you know, I would say that in Los Angeles, he is revered and rightfully so. But I guess when you look back at the national, uh, nationally, I think, um, I think names that are talked about all the time are um, Bob Gibson mm-hmm. or Greg Maddox or Randy Johnson, um, you know, because these, these other pitchers had a lot, a longer career of more dominance if you will a longer period of dominance but right hersheiser he helped the cleveland indians to the um, world series twice in the 1990s as well uh the indians didn't win either series they lost in 95 to the atlanta they lost in 97 to the florida marlins but yeah hersheiser was able to help lead um you know a couple of cleveland teams to the world series as well later in his career Mm-hmm. Uh, after having you know a um, career-threatening injury uh, back in 1990, so it's just uh, fascinating that uh, you know for that season, basically he was lights out from the start of September onwards. I think he might have given up like only three earned runs.
0: Wow! So uh, we you know with the with the Dodgers with their dominance, you know in the playoffs, you know with their I'm not saying dominance, but the, the way they played against the Mets, having lost 10 of 11 during the regular season, they had that focus. They had that drive. They had that, that, I don't, whatever word I could use for them to get through that series. They had to get ready now after beating the Mets in seven games. They had to get up and play against the Oakland A's, another team that had won over 100 games uh, with the Bash brothers. And these guys were stacked too, just like the Mets. It's amazing how they had to get up for the net, the world series wow. after a dramatic season, I mean, a dramatic and LCS against the Mets.
1: Yeah. And actually, and again, um, the bulletin for material again comes up. It was Don <laughs> Baylor, uh, the old NBA. Don Baylor was saying something like, uh, we would have rather faced the Mets because the Mets were the better team or something to that <laughs> effect. Right. So, you know, and uh, Tommy Lashora being the master motivator that he was, probably ran off like 100 copies of this
0: wow. article and put it <laughs> in
1: every player's locker, right? Something along those lines, you know. Uh, again, it was like... Uh, and, Don, you know, Don Baylor um, was a former American League MVP. He was uh, one of the uh, veteran players in Baylor was also criticizing the closer as well, uh, Jay Howell, because Howell had <laughs> pitched for Oakland the year before, right? There there were some players who had pitched for, for played for Oakland and vice versa, um, you know, in the past. So there was, you know, some bad blood, if you will. Mm-hmm. And even, uh, I believe, Tim Belcher, the Dodgers, um, one of the Dodgers' starting pitchers had come from Oakland as well, Um you know, in a trade. But but yeah, so basically again, bulletin board material. I don't know how big it really was, you know, um, but they're saying that, you know, the, the Dodger players were saying that that was one of the key factors. And also even Bob Costas uh, apparently criticizing the Dodgers having like the (laughs) weakest hitting lineup in world series history. So Bob Costas said that on air prior to game four, Right. And again, Lasorda was like watching that on the monitor in the clubhouse. I said, like, you, you, you guys hear what <laughs> Bob Costa said about us? You go, you guys go out there and, and show them. Right. And then later on, after the game, which Oakland, uh, which the A's lost, the, the, Dodgers won. And Lasorda was kind of like making fun of Bob Costa. So you're <laughs> our MVP. <laughs> you uh, motivated us to, uh, victory. Right. So yeah. I, I guess the Dodgers used little things like that, like um, you know where they were being. I guess not given the proper respect that they thought they deserved. The uh, Dodgers apparently used that to their advantage, and they had Hershiser. They had Gibson hitting that home run, and the basically they had to win the other games that uh, uh, Hershiser didn't pitch in, and they managed to do that. Um, you know, winning. They 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 won. Game four in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody talks about that now, but they won Game Oakland to take a three-one series lead, and everybody knew that that was over. They're up three-one, and Hershiser was going to play the next game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so there was a you know Jay Howell, the closer, came on to get the last seven outs in game number four to put them up three-one. Uh, of course, you don't see that anymore, but uh, the closer coming on to get seven outs to close out a World Series game, right, uh, that uh, right. They, they won that game to go out 3-1 and uh, then close it out the next uh, the next game.
0: Incredible. So, uh, you know, the Mets were stacked, as were the Oakland A's. Uh, they had a lineup that was off the charts. Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, the Bash brothers, Carney Lansford, all-star third baseman, Dave Henderson, who had played for the Red Sox in the '86 um ALCS with that home run against Donnie Moore and the angels and then you know he had some a pretty good world series you had Dave Parker and Don Baylor who was giving uh Don Baylor that is giving bulletin board material so they these guys were established great ball players and Terry Steinbach is the catcher and then you also had uh Dave Stewart at one time pitch for the Dodgers am I correct
1: that's correct yes uh, as a rookie Um, In 81, Dave Stewart was a reliever, and he uh, was a member of the 1981 World Series team, correct?
0: Yes, and then you had Bob Welch, who was a a pitcher for the uh, Dodgers as well at the previous season. And um, he had gone to the Oakland A's, and he had a great year in 88. So we get to uh, the famous game uh, for the World Series Game 1. And uh, one thing I really enjoyed reading about the book when I read the book was, you know, Kirk Gibson, not um, being able to dress. He was in so much pain. I could feel the pain when I was reading the book, um, literally cause he was just incredible. He was in the, uh, the locker room or the area near the, uh, the dugout where he didn't even have his uniform on and he didn't come out for pregame introductions. And that's how much pain he was in. Um, he was really banged up as, as, as well for the, uh, getting ready for the world series. And, uh, Pulled left hamstring and a swollen right knee. And uh, the rest is history. But uh, what about Kirk Gibson uh, in that game one? What did you find out about that that you may have not have known? Um, game was just one of the greatest uh, ever in World Series history as far as an ending is concerned.
1: Yeah, and you, you, you kind of think back to that. Um, you know that these players – most of them are competitors, uh, ultra competitive. You know, if they weren't going to be dressed or weren't going to be in uniform, you know that it was a very serious injury that they, you know, for them to not be in uniform or be in the dugout. Uh, I think that um, the fact that Tommy Lasota was able to trust him enough to let him have a place appearance against Dennis Zackersley, is the fact that he ha- the Lasora had that much faith in him even though he was hobbling uh he could, he could barely walk right uh he- and if he hit a he- if he hit a line drive that fell into the outfield you-, you don't know if he was even going to make it to first base mm-hmm. all right so the-, the fact that Lasora was had enough faith in him and you must be kind of thinking as well like the players in the dugout they must be wondering like what is Lasorda doing here (laughs) setting him up when he can't even walk? So you can just imagine that uh, thinking that, and I even saw it on a documentary, um, you know, on MLB network. I I won't say who, but there was one player who was telling MLB network in a documentary, like, was Lasorda crazy? What was he doing? Like, he's going to cost us this game right here by sending Gibson up. But, um, but there were definitely at least a couple of players who told me directly that once Gibson hit that home run, they knew the series was over. <laughs> <laughs> and of course they're not gonna like put that in print, but they you know they don't they don't want to like offend anybody, but they said that they knew once that was hit out of the park, they knew that it was over. <laughs> they knew it was over. It, it was just like that. I mean, uh, and I've seen actually some of those quotes as well in print, um, somewhere on the internet. I'm sure you can find them, but there mm-hmm. were at least a couple of players who told me that they knew it was over. So, I mean, that's something I always wondered. Um, they know that you have, you're going to win, right? <laughs> um, and I guess also what I, what was the one, th- another thing that stuck out was how, uh, give- Gibson kind of like one, wanted to prove Vince Scully wrong because apparently he heard Vince Scully on uh, on the on TV talking about how Gibson isn't even going to be <laughs> playing; he's not even in the dugout. So it was as though um, it was as though Gibson was maybe um, extra motivated to prove Vince Scully wrong. And that's what it felt like to me, just reading wow. uh, about you know what happened that night.
0: You know, uh, while reading the book, uh, I did pick up on uh, Gibson was asked every inning, was that true? Uh, Is he ready to go? And he said, I can give you the knife." Is that true?
1: Yeah. I remember that was uh, communicated to me. It was uh, Ben Hines who uh, was right there. He was a hitting coach. He was right there. And he sent, uh, I believe he sent a bad boy to run to Gibson and check up on how he was doing. Yeah, but, you know. Ben Hines, the hitting coach, uh, they mentioned that to me, that um, Tommy Lasora would send a bad boy down to check up on, on Gibson and see how he was feeling. So yeah, he, it was as though, um, Tommy Lasora knew that uh, he had to rely on Gibson, uh, one way or another, um, uh, to, to try and help out in some way. So even if it meant having him go up there and hobbling, you know to uh, try and get an and bat uh, against uh, whoever Oakland was throwing. Maybe had a decoy on deck uh, and um, when Mike Davis was hitting. So Mike Davis um, also played for Oakland the year before. Now with the Dodgers, and Mike Davis had hit like twenty home runs a year before for Oakland. So the A's knew that Davis had power, had some power. So apparently. Uh, Eckersley with two outs and nobody on decided to pitch carefully to Davis not wanting to uh, give up an extra base hit and mm-hmm. seeing Dave Anderson, a light hitting um utility player was on deck. So that might have factored into uh, Eckersley's pitch selection. Um and he threw very carefully he pitched very carefully to uh to Mike Davis and then of course once Davis got on um Gibson came up. But now you think about it as well. We have the pitch clock beginning in 2023 <laughs> in the big league. So you, <laughs> so if, if you had, had a pitch clock back then, uh, Gibson's home run would not have happened because uh, he was stepping out too much, uh, gathering his gathering his thoughts, and that, that must have been a distraction to uh, Eckersley.
0: Well, you know, It's fascinating. Also picked up on the book, uh, he was swinging on a tee ball and he was grunting in pain. Um, He could barely swing without having some sort of screeching in pain uh, while he was doing that in the uh, ballows of uh, Dodger Stadium there. Uh, That's just incredible how he got up there. But I went back and I looked at the ninth inning. I watched it twice before we uh, did this episode here. And if you really find it on YouTube, it's about 16 minutes long, and it's a fascinating Vince Scully. It's got the Goodyear blimp looking down at Dodger Stadium, and Vince Scully set up, teed up everything perfect. And then during the uh, when um, the prior at-bats uh, for Gibson getting up, they had a couple of pan shots at the dugout with Gibson swinging, having the bat and the helmet on, and that that gave me goosebumps when I saw that. I had forgotten about that. Um, I found that incredible and I was actually, it was like watching the real game again. It was incredible. And, um, he came up and then, uh, he came out to the bat, uh, the on deck circle. Uh, he got a five second standing ovation. I thought that was incredible. What, what, what are your thoughts? When you think about that, that moment right there, uh, when he's walking up to the, uh,
1: the plate. Well, uh, looking back at it, um, Again, yeah, it gives you goosebumps because you, even though you're watching it again and again, uh, these are those classic moments that you'll forever remember, or you know, sports fans will forever remember. uh, It's a part of uh, sports lore, and I believe it was uh, voted the number one sports moment in Los Angeles history, sports history. Right? Got it. So, yeah, that that just again even though you know the outcome, you know what, what was going to happen. it just, you just kind of think about, Oh, wow. Like, uh, this is a moment that, uh, you know, you never forget. It's like somebody, um, you know, if you grew up loving sports, wanting to play sports, that is something that you dreamed of, uh, facing, you know, in your backyard (laughs) when you were a kid. And
0: the thing that I really found fascinating, uh, when I was reading the book, um, Gibson was up, uh, after watching it, he had an 0-2 count, which I found to be unbelievable because you don't know what's going to happen. And then he worked the count to 3-2. to two, And then there's a point in the game where uh, there was a scouting report by Mel Didier uh, that had been given to Gibson. And w- I know what it is, but what was that scouting report on uh, the count at the time of the abat, and then what kind of pitch was to be thrown and uh I like to hear how how that what that was because that was incredible
1: well, that was very controversial because again you were going back um when I talked to them it was almost thirty years since it happened that the Oakland guys will deny it, and um the a the uh Dodger players will say yes, it happened but apparently uh daddy the uh, scout had been you know watching the oakland games because um they knew in advance right these are advanced scouts uh, that if they met the world series they will be facing either boston or oakland uh, so daddy apparently had in his scouting report that when uh when dennis actually went to a three and two count on a left-handed hitter Dennis Ackersley would throw a backdoor slider on three and two to a left-handed hitter. It's in the scouting report, right? Um, so it's in the scouting report. So if it's three and two to a left-handed hitter, um, backdoor slider from Dennis Ackersley. Wow. Players, it was talked about in the meetings with the hitters, but then um, historians have gone back and checked and found that during the regular season, there were virtually no... Situations where a left-handed hitter came up against Dennis Zakris Lee and a pitch on the count was three and two. So historians have come have uh, come out and said that that you know this is maybe bogus because for the fact that when Dedier would have been scouting the A's, it would have been from August onwards. Let's say, mm-hmm. and they checked all the box scores. There were hardly any. Left-handed hitters, who faced Dennis uh and the count went to three and two. <laughs> and for the, the a- A's, will like that, right? So that's again. I don't want to be controversial, but this is like I'm telling from both sides. Is the, it, the Dodgers said that this happened? This was in a scouting report. I'm sure <laughs> the scouting report is somewhere in a hall of fame or somewhere. Uh, but again you back and look on baseballreference.com or you hover, you research it, you know, from the time when the would have been um, scouting Oakland, <laughs> you know, let's say from let's say from August on, there were virtually no such situations where there was a left-headed hitter facing accuracy and the count was three and two. So how could he have known that? So again, uh, yeah. that's up there in um, baseball. More. So <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> it's a uh, controversial. I would say in, in this case, um, but that that's part of sports lore now. Um, so. Yeah.
0: I, uh, I watched the bat the other day and, uh, he had that little nubbler as, uh, Vince Scully said, I mean, an inch to the left would have the game, you know, would have, the game would have been over the game of inches. And then he stepped away before he had that home run, uh, against Eckersley, um, I guess to get his peace of mind, or he, he was talking to himself that the uh, the backdoor slider was coming in. Uh, but uh, it's amazing when you see two sides of the story. And then when he swung uh, for that home run, that was just all his upper body strength. That was just that's in, that was incredible. And I firmly believe, and I'm sure others do, maybe you that that series was pretty much it. Shocked the A's and pretty much ruin their psyche for the rest of the series.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, at the end of the day, I, I haven't stepped on the field at any level uh, that they, they would be at that you would still think, you would still think that the level of competitiveness, the guys like Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Connie Lansford, you you know that, you know, in particular Players like Carney Lansford and Don Baylor, you know that they would never give ever give up or give right. in. Uh, so I would, I guess, in that sense I would find it hard to believe that their psyches would have been that much damage. I I can, I can believe maybe Don Baylor because Don Baylor was <laughs> with the nineteen eighty six Red Sox. Yes, but then, <laughs> but then, I don't think you uh, you would. Um, he he did, by the way, win uh, as a member of the eighty seven Twins. If I'm not mistaken, he did, but don baylor uh, i I can't see someone like him saying saying ever that you know we're done i I just can't see it from somebody like him or like carney lansford i'm I'm sure that they would battle um even though they're down a game talking to somebody who who said that you know they never thought that the series was over until like that last out but Mm -hmm. again um there was at least one person who said that but I, I think it might have been someone on the Dodgers actually who said that they never... So yeah, they were, they were split in terms of, you know, how there were a couple players who said that they knew the series was over after game one. There was at least another player who said something to the effect that they never thought that the series was finished until the last out was caught. I mean, I, again... The thing is, of course, after what happened in 1985, 1986, 1987, you, you could see that because in 1985, Kansas City Royals were down 1 nothing mm-hmm. in game six and were going to be eliminated in World Series. And then they came back and, and went on to win the World Series. 1986, the Mets were down. Yep. Of course. Yes. Everyone knows what happened. Um, As I'm losing, 1987, uh, the Twins were a dreadful team away from the metrodome cool. and they were down three games or two and then they came back and the last two so i guess in that sense you could say that yeah um, you never take it for granted that in the series is going to be over uh, you just have to make sure you continue to go and play so i would think that um, I, I actually, I, I know who it was now. It, it wasn't a, a player who told me that. It was a, a writer. Mm-hmm. It was a writer who told me that in the press box. Yeah, I remember. It was in the press box where there was a guy who kept insisting the A's were going to come back. <laughs> All right, yeah. And, and of course, there was, yeah, for the players on the field, um, I would say if, again, this would be a cliche, like if somebody had thought that they were going to lose, they shouldn't even be in uniform. Right, true. <laughs> right. Yeah. You uh, need to have somebody in, in the dugout at the at the plate on the mound who actually believes that they can win. So, yeah.
0: Well, you know, I think sometimes when you watch uh, like even in basketball or uh, other sports or the, the football like in playoffs or things like that, like the team that gets beat, gets punched in the mouth and they don't punch back. I guess that's probably a more diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, it was probably a shock for them to lose. I know it's only one game and that game won, but one thing I found really unbelievable about that uh his home run trot is when he's turning third base. I mean literally he could barely just get around third base to get to home plate and it's just his upper body strength is must have been incredible just a just he's like he just like he's flung the bat. I mean he put no leg uh power into it and it was just showed you how strong he was. Um, and I remember watching the game, I was jumping up and down. I couldn't believe it. It was just like utter shock. I mean, this is before, uh, social media and things like that. All you had was TV and that's all you watched. And you would watch the, you know, the sports on the, uh, the late news. That's what we had back in 88. But, uh, I found that to be, uh, probably one of the greatest home runs. And uh, is Kirk Gibson, you know, looking back at the 88 team here, would you think, and I think so, uh, Kirk Gibson is still held in high regard in LA. Um, what What are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And again, that uh, that's been voted as the uh, top sports moment in Los Angeles history. So mm. that's held in very high regard yeah. when you consider how, Los Angeles is Lakers town right um, many great moments with the Lakers for sure um, even with the hockey teams' red beef with um, football right uh, but the Kurt Gibson home run has been voted like the number one sports moment in LA history and also wow. when uh, the team invited these players back to Dodger Stadium um, a few years back for their anniversary. The thirtieth anniversary of that championship team, like Gibson, received a you know one of the loudest ovations, and, and you expect that, and you you would say that even though even though he had just that one healthy season, if you think about it, and he played three years in Los Angeles, and he's probably remembered more as a Tiger because of his uh, <laughs> yeah. ties with the Detroit Tigers, uh, he is still revered in Los Angeles. Uh, that's that's for sure. And, you know,
0: one thing I didn't think about—he was also the manager of the Diamondbacks. I'm sure every time they went to L.A., he got a loud ovation too, and he'd be introduced as the manager. I didn't—I forgot about he was the manager of the Diamondbacks at one time.
1: That's right, and yeah, it's just um, for for him. I'm sure you know it's, it's a thrill to go back to Los Angeles every time. But knowing just his persona, I'm sure that when he's back in L.A. with the Diamondbacks, he's looking to. Uh, you know to get down to business and beat the dodgers he's probably not reflecting on uh you know the past because you know he's there in la as a Diamondbacks manager to lead arizona to victory so i, I would think that he's all about business but uh definitely i got i got it, one it must feel special to years later
0: Absolutely. I got one funny story back. I I grew up in the Massachusetts area, so I would go see the Red Sox play in the in the 80s. Um, And remember going to a Red Sox Tigers game. The thing was 84-85. It was raining at Fenway Park and they were playing the Tigers and we had garbage bags because it was raining. We were sitting behind home plate and uh, Kirk Gibson was in right field and a fan ran out of someone in the, in this from the stands ran out to him to go shake his hand. And Kirk Gibson just pretty much like put his hands on him until security got there. That's how intense he was. And I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, guy wanted to shake his hand and Gibson wanted no part of it, uh, on that night at Fenway park, but, uh, unbelievable. So, KP Wee, um, I want to thank you very much for joining me. I know you uh, have a busy schedule, but uh, I want to thank you very much for joining me. I thoroughly enjoyed this, talking about the L.A. Dodgers. I love reading the book. Again, the book is The 1988 Dodgers Reliving the Championship Season. Uh, It's a great read. You're going to learn a lot of things about the Dodgers other than Kirk Gibson and Earl Horsheiser. And KP, uh, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks, Rob, for having me on. Always a pleasure. And let's talk again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely.